your active debate on ramping up hydrogen production. We will be talking about how we can speed up the steel industry's transition while navigating the current unprecedented energy crisis. My name is Dave Keating. I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios at the heart of the EU quarter. Now, we know that right now European consumers and businesses are facing steep increases in energy prices. The Ukraine war and the accompanying energy brinksmanship by Vladimir Putin has exposed many shortcomings in the EU's energy system, particularly the over-reliance on Russian gas. This is also causing a rethink of some EU climate policy, including the role of natural gas as a transitional energy carrier, bridging the current energy era to the future energy era. Industries relying on a mix of natural gas and hydrogen for their greenhouse gas emissions reductions are having to reconsider their investment plans. It's in this context that hydrogen has come very much into focus, given that it can be transported using some of the same infrastructure as gas. But ramping it up will require a robust EU hydrogen market, one that will be able to deliver renewable and low-carbon hydrogen in large volumes and in the shortest time frame possible. However, with currently no hydrogen economy in place and not even the basic infrastructure to deliver it to end consumers, where do we start? The European Commission has launched proposals on an EU framework to decarbonize gas markets, promote hydrogen and reduce methane emissions, which have the potential to get things moving. But what will be necessary to deliver on that promise? Today in this hybrid event with online and online participants and participants here in the room, we'll be discussing the specific circumstances of the steel industry and how it can be part of this effort to ramp up hydrogen production and speed up the steel industry's transition toward net zero. What are the key requirements to create a well-functioning hydrogen market? Well, we've got some great panelists to discuss this here with us today. Next to me here we have Ruud Kempener, who's team leader for hydrogen financing and international at the European Commission's energy department. We have Jens Geier, center-left German MEP and member of the European Parliament's Industry and Energy Committee. Uh, we also have with us uh, Bianca Vianprado, who is um, the uh, committee chair of the Energy Committee at the Steel Association Eurofer and head of EU regulatory affairs at ThyssenKrupp Steel Europe. Unfortunately, Gunnar Grubler will be in your programs as the president of Eurofer. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it because of unforeseen circumstances, but we're very grateful that Bianca was able to step in. Uh, so then joining us online, we have um, Jorge Palomar Herrero, head of green hydrogen develop at the Spanish electricity utility Iberdrola. And we have Catherine Bannett, SARE research fellow and professor at the University of Oslo. And we will also be joined here in the room in just a moment by Rosa Puentes Fernandez, future energy leader at the World Energy Council. Uh, but Ruud, let's start with you. I mentioned that the Commission has some of these frameworks in place for hydrogen. These, of course, these ideas predate the Ukraine war and the current energy crisis. Um, but how does the Commission, what's the Commission's view on how the EU and EU policy can provide the incentives and certainty needed to ramp up hydrogen production? Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much for inviting me here, here today. Um, 
the European Commission indeed put in place a, a hydrogen strategy in 2020. Uh, and this, uh, of course, seems to be already a long time ago, but I think we're lucky we did it in 2020 because the strategy in itself already has some of the elements which I think are still very important today. Uh, and the three elements which I think uh, I want to highlight here is that for indeed the creation of uh, a market for renewable and low carbon hydrogen, you first of all need production. So we have quite a lot of uh, policy proposals in the Fit for 55 package which explicitly focus on production. We're talking here about revisions of the EU emissions trading scheme. We're talking here about state aid guidelines. We're talking about the Resilience and Recovery Fund, of course, for COVID, but has a big hydrogen component in it already. The second one is we need infrastructure. We need to be able to get the hydrogen from the producers to the consumers. Again, the Fit for 55 package has in it already a full-fledged proposal for hydrogen infra infrastructure not only focusing on where it is, uh, so we have policies which promote, for example, cross-border uh, energy infrastructure, which is called like, the Trans-European Network for Energy, but also regulation in terms of who owns it, who owns that infrastructure, how do we certify the, the, the hydrogen which goes through those pipelines. And the third one is, of course, consumption. Uh, it's clear to each and every one of us that both renewable and low-carbon hydrogen are more expensive than the alternative which, have, which we've been using in the industry so far. So we need to promote that. And we've done that through, indeed, setting targets for, for 2030. Now, I think the key element that has changed, especially with the Repower EU, is that we thought 2030 targets are, uh, are, are ambitious. But if we're now looking what happened with natural gas, it means that actually our ambitions to get uh, rid of Russian natural gas are even more ambitious than that. So here we have set targets for 2027, actually before our 2030 targets for demand are kicking in. So I think that is one of the key elements now which we're looking at. How can we already, well before the 2030 targets that we've put in place, create these incentives for especially the steel industry to start investing uh, in the necessary technologies to shift from coal, coke oven, to, to nat natural gas. Um, and I think then one of the key elements there, uh, of course, to make that happen, is to make sure that today, investment decisions, which the steel industry faces, that they can be made to give that a certainty. That they don't need to wait later or a, a later point in time. Investment decisions of staying here, uh, continuing to producing, that we can couple those to investment decisions about creating processes and production processes that not are only kind of viable in the short term, but are really kind of compatible with the long-term objective of this climate neutral economy that we have here in Europe. Thanks, Rude. And I should mention, I forgot to mention that you can ask your questions to Rude and the other panelists by putting them into Slido. Whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, there's some QR codes on your seat. You can put in those questions to Slido. I'll get them here and I'll put them to the panelists uh, later on. Jens, let's turn to you. When we're looking at how energy intensive industries can really grasp the potential here, um, what role do you think that hydrogen should have in energy-intensive industries. Is it a good idea to grasp uh, these, these opportunities, or are there things to watch out for? I, I would say that it is not less than the future of energy-intensive industry. When we look at the steel sector, and you are now producing your steel with a blast furnace, there is no alternative when you 
look at uh, um, a zero uh, CO2 emission. So when you're relying on an electric arc, you need only, in parenthesis, green energy in order to produce green steel. But when you have a blast furnace um, that is common in, in the area of Germany where, where, where I come from, the alternative is first to, to blast hydrogen instead of coke inside the furnace. That already brings in uh, a reduction of CO2 emissions. And then the next step is to have a, a direct reduction installment instead of a furnace. And if you run that with green gases, you end up with green steel. So when you want to keep uh, the jobs, when you want to keep the, um, uh, the, 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 the pr production chain, when you want to protect the climate, and we should do that all together, then there is no alternative to ramping up uh, um, hydrogen and get making it green as soon as possible. The irony is, given the, um, the, net, the prices of natural gas today, um, green hydrogen would be absolutely compatible if we would only have it. And um, so th there is the possibility to decarbonize the energy-intensive industry because what I said for steel is more or less also working for uh, the chemistry sector, for aluminum, for, for other non-metal, uh, non-iron metals, and so on and so on. It is the future of the uh, energy-intensive industry when you want uh, to keep it. Yeah, it's a good point in, in terms of how we develop that system. We'll be talking about that a little more in the discussion. Catherine, let's go to you next online. Um, you, of course, have been looking at these issues so you could bring us a kind of academic perspective. How, uh, how are we going to formulate this with hydrogen regulation? Where are we at with the regulation on hydrogen right now? And what trends are we seeing in terms of how governments are approaching hydrogen? Mm. Yeah, thank you likewise for, for the invite and the opportunity to share some views. I think that uh, indeed we're at a crucial time in terms of regulation of hydrogen. And because we have a small market, uh, but we need, as you uh, point out in the title of this event, ramp up hydrogen in the market. And, and uh, as was pointed out, I think it's crucial as it is highlighted in the uh, package put forward by the Commission in December to act both on production transport, including conversion and storage, so the infrastructure market, but as well the commodity market. And all those different uh, steps are following different regulatory paths. For example, we have already high ambition levels that has been increased uh, after the Repower EU plan was adopted. And then we need to fill the gap and we need to accompany that by regulation. Uh, and that's a, a redesign regulation, not only for hydrogen or natural gas, but for all gases uh, as it is un, uh, envisaged. And then uh, we need in terms of other um, uh, packages, uh, notably under the Fit for 55, to align with the revision of the Renewable Energy Directive that was newly adopted to make sure that the commodity as well uh, will fit into that market that will be traded uh, uh, between partners and across borders. And finally, we have the, the, the financing gap that is also crucial to, to fill. And here we have different instruments that will be crucial to fill that gap. We have uh, the uh, stated uh, framework. We have as well new instruments in terms, for example,
example, of a carbon contract for difference that could be used and the revision of the EU ETS, um, but as well the taxonomy and for infrastructure, the 10E regulation that also has been mentioned. So different processes that are crucial, but I would say that the debate that we have in the next few weeks around the uh, gas uh, uh, package and the gas and the hydrogen package will be crucial accompanied by the discussion on uh, commodity market. Thanks. Let's turn to Rosa next. So from the World Energy Council's point of view, um, how important do you think hydrogen will be in the future energy mix? very much so I'm very sorry for just appearing in out of the blue so I think everybody knows traffic in Brussels is crazy I would have liked to take the metro but that was 55 minutes so I would never have made it um, so I'm Rosa Puentes and I'm um, at the World Energy Council Future Energy Leaders which is basically the community they have created to empower young energy uh, professionals um, match them with more senior energy professionals and try to bring together this community and try to address the main challenges. The first one um, that you may have heard around is about humanizing energy. And that's a very interesting one because we talk a lot about what hydrogen can do, uh, but sometimes we forget uh, how much hydrogen actually may change people's lives and how do we involve local communities that are usually um, well located where we want to develop hydrogen, let's say Africa, let's say um, Chile, Brazil. So that's one of the main pillars that we are uh, bringing together and we have developed several reports at the World Energy Council where we are addressing this local regional scale up. Um, but we are also uh, trying to find what are the, we call it the how-to community. So I think we have all seen a lot of what for the past years. What can we do? What can uh, policymakers do? Uh, but now we have to move on to the how we can make it really work and what is the real implementation of hydrogen. And hydrogen um, in general for the energy community seems to be uh, one of the main pivotal pillars to, for the decarbonization of the sector in general, the energy sector. But it's also, um, although maybe a little bit controversial, not the silver bullet. Um, there are many other vectors that need to interact with each other. And I guess um, some of the other panelists may agree with me that at the end of the day will be the energy system integration that will really deliver the decarbonization goals. And this is what we are trying to do from a more holistic perspective uh, to look for these interactions and try to understand how hydrogen can play a role in this whole system, but how can it also, you know, uh, interact with other vectors and build uh, from scratch, you know, this energy sector without forgetting that um, there are other like wind, solar, but even energy efficiency that we don't talk about that often anymore, but they are still there, they're still existing, and that they're a first step before moving on to really developing hydrogen. Makes sense. Um, Bianca, let's go to you next. How important do you think hydrogen will be for the steel sector, speaking both uh, from your company and from the, the broad steel sector's perspective? Um, and what is needed to realize the full potential of hydrogen for the steel sector? Yeah, the steel sector um, has a huge challenge you know, in front of us to decarbonize our sector. We today, uh, looking to the European projects that we ha have all, all in Europe, we are talking about uh, around 60 projects to decarbonize all over Europe. This represents uh, the potential to abate one-third of our direct and indirect emissions. Um, this represents 
80 million tons of CO2 per year. This is what we are talking about. Um, but all these projects can only be implemented if we uh, really have some of I would say three points at least that needs to be fulfilled. I would like first to echo what has been said uh, already in the panel, but for sure one of the most important things uh, is that we really need the availability of this hydrogen. So we were talking about the production of the hydrogen uh, and connected to the production of the hydrogen, we need the legal certainty and this is connected to the regulation. So if the regulation is not in place, if the regulation is not clear and give the legal certainty, it's really hard for companies to make investment decisions. So uh, given, uh, we have already a lot of different regulations, this is already very, very tough for many to understand, but if everything is not aligned together uh, and coherent between each other, it's really hard uh, for, for companies uh, to put those projects forward. And then, uh, Another point that is really crucial, it also has, uh, has been said here today, is the timely availability of the infrastructure. If the infrastructure is not in place and in the way that it's really available for all those projects, and then we are talking about projects that can be located in the coast, but we are also talking about projects that are located really in the land. Like I talk, for instance, about Chisinkup, uh, my project. We are, we are not located in the coast. We are really depending on a pipeline. Uh, to, to get that hydrogen to us. Uh, we, are not, we, we don't have the land enough uh, to construct the amount of renewable electricity that we need to really provide uh, the, the amount of renewable hydrogen that we, we, we envisage. So uh, pipelines are for sure uh, crucial uh, for us to achieve uh, these decarbonization projects. Um, I can give you some numbers because we talk about, oh, uh, the, uh, the steel industry needs so much. Yeah, let's put a little bit in perspective. So when we talk about 2030, and then let me uh, separate a little bit here. So we have, we have a, a target as a steel industry in 2030, and we also have a target in 2050. Some companies, uh, for instance, uh, Chisinkup, we have a 2045 target. But in general, when we talk about the steel industry, we have a 2030 target and 2050 target. And then when we look to the 2030 target, we are talking about 2 million tons of hydrogen needed. Only to produce this renewable hydrogen, we will need 94 terawatt hour of electricity. On top of this electricity, we will need 75 additional uh, uh, renewable electricity uh, connected to our, to our uh, sites in general. And all this represents 165 terawatts of electricity only in 2030. When I go to 2050, the numbers explode. And then I can, and then, sorry, what is 165 terawatts of electricity? Because this could sound a little bit, uh, <laughs> what, what does this number represent? We are talking about twice the Belgium consumption in 2020. This is a lot. So when we talk about, and then I will put a little bit numbers on 2050. On 2050, we are talking about 5.5 million tons of hydrogen. Uh, only to produce this hydrogen, we will need 20, uh, uh, 234 terawatts of electricity. And uh, on top of this, we also need 165 terawatts of electricity. So, so we are talking about 400 
terawatts of electricity by 2050. So this is a challenge that we have as a steel industry, and uh, it's a huge one. Yeah, I mean, that, the, the production challenge is really enormous. I mean, when you put it like that, 400 terawatts, that's huge. So um, you know, when we're thinking about the production challenges and the need for electricity, that's a good moment to turn to Jorge online. Um, how important will hydrogen be for electric utilities, and, and where do you see things going forward in terms of the, the immense need? Well, thank you for, for inviting Petrola to be here. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, hydrogen for utilities is, is key. Of course, we have to give our clients, our partners, our society, uh, decarbonization solutions. And as we all know, uh, electrification is, uh, is the most uh, efficient way to decarbonize, but uh, reduce dependence on fossil fuels. But of course, hydrogen has a very important role to play. So that is why hydrogen is also key for, for utilities. So Repower Europe, as mentioned, um, is a big challenge. It's a big number now. It's four times what our previous commitment was. So uh, we think this is going to be a, a, an important impact with this commitment on Repower Europe. On decarbonization, but it also starts to be something uh, important on reducing um, fossil fuel dependence. So uh, thinking of these two aspects is why we think that uh, renewable hydrogen is the way. Uh, renewable hydrogen is the only one that is 100% free of CO2. Uh, it's a mature technology. Electrolysis is something that has been being used for many years. We have the challenge to scale it up, but it's a very well-known technology. I mean, the other options like uh, carbon capture, well, it's an ongoing technology, not very mature. And also, uh, well, the only one that will mean reducing the dependence on fossil fuels is green hydrogen produced with uh, green renewable energy. But of course, the challenge of the renewable energy is there also. In Iberola, we, we are uh, very, um, uh, very much focused on renewable utility. So our ambition in hydrogen is very strong. We, we want to build for gigawatt of electrolyzer from now to 2030, we have 60 projects already under development in eight different countries, and it's a firm commitment. We're working with, uh, with partners, with off-takers, uh, with companies on the value chain. Real uh, um, alliances has been established uh, with the Fertimedia for fertilizer industry, with BP for decarbonizing uh, the industry and build a hydrogen economy in Spain and UK with uh, Cummins for building electrolyzer also the value chain, I mean, to make this a reality. And, and, and we have uh, created reality. I mean, we have built two projects. One is a, a, a facility for loading, uh, for charging uh, buses in Barcelona, which is already, uh, you can see, but these buses, these green hydrogen buses in Barcelona. And the other one is our 20 megawatt plant, which I think is the, 20, the biggest plant now in Europe being built that is directly connected to a fertilizer uh, facility. So these are, these are reality. But I want to say that uh, we are really suffering delays when we want to boost this. And the, the objectives of the Repower Europe are quite ambitious and the reality needs to happen. So when we sit with an off-taker, with a, with a partner to try to, to think on numbers, uh, there's always the same key point, which is what is the cost of energy. So the delegated tax to define 
what is green hydrogen, I think is, uh, and, and Bianca was mentioning regulation, and I think the first point on regulation is uh, the definition of green hydrogen, and this is key for making this a reality. We're waiting for that because the moment you sit with someone to build something on a long-term basis, you need to know what kind of energy you will need. So this is a key point that I wanted to, to put on the table. Thanks a lot, Jorge. So I, I want to ask you guys first about how this all fits into the geopolitical context that we're in right now. We know that uh, the Commission came out with its Repower EU strategy, whose chief goal is to wean the EU off of uh, Russian gas, and it is a, a broad rethinking. Um, Rude, tell us a little bit about how the Commission is thinking about hydrogen, specifically on this energy security issue, um, because certainly I've seen hydrogen come in and out of focus over the years, and right now it's very much in focus because of the security issue. How does it play a role there for the Commission? Um, <clears throat> the Repower EU, which we published indeed in, uh, in May this year, has indeed quite a different focus than the Fit for 55. And it really clear is, we're looking at 2027, how can we get rid of natural, natural gas from Russia? Um, the role of hydrogen, actually, is quite limited in that. If you look at kind of what are the key measures to reduce our gas consumption, we're talking about energy efficiency measures, which are in the order of 120, 116 BCM. If we're talking about hydrogen, it's 27 BCM. Hydrogen in steel is mostly replacing coke at the moment. It's not replacing natural gas. So I think that's what we have to kind of really kind of keep in perspective. It's not that we are going to replace natural gas with hydrogen. And I think that's also not our objective. What our objective should be, and there I think we should think broader about just kind of getting rid of natural gas. We want to get rid of natural gas, but maintain our industry. And I think that's where hydrogen plays an important role, to have that ability to kind of have certain steel sectors, which are certain industrial sectors, which are reliant on natural gas, give them the opportunity to make that shift. And that, I think, is where the acceleration needs to take place. And that's what we all have to do together. Um, um, it's interesting to see that, like, in, in our analysis, for example, we see, I think you, you were talking about numbers, we see about 1.5 million tons in, in 2030. Now, if the industry says, actually, we can do 2 million tons, we can consume 2 million tons, I think we should try to make that happen. Uh, I think we really should think, okay, not only how can we make that happen in terms of production, so maybe can we initially do some uh, hydrogen injection in existing blast furnaces to already have the production in place, and at the same time think with the industry, how can we make this transition happen as fast as possible? Which are the blast furnaces which we could initially already transfer to DRI, so that we then also think about the infrastructure being available to those particular plants? I don't think this is a, this is a crisis which anyone individually can solve. The Commission cannot do it, the European Parliament and itself cannot. We really have to work together to make this happen. And I think even though it's challenging times, I think for me, at least in our discussion, it becomes clear that we all need to work together to make this happen. And that in itself, I think, is an opportunity. Bianca, let me get your response to that. Is that also how you see hydrogen's role for the steel sector? And then also we had a couple questions from the audience who just wanted you to clarify the 2030 and 2050 figures that you gave out in terms of terawatts or terawatt hours. Could you give those figures again? Sure. Um, so I can start again with uh, the numbers. Uh, 
2030, we are talking about 2 million tons of hydrogen. For the production of this hydrogen, we will need 94 terawatts hour of electricity. On top of this, we need 75, uh, uh, 75 terawatt hour of electricity. And this represents for 2030, 165 terawatts hour of electricity. For 2050, we are talking about 5.5 million tons of hydrogen. To produce this hydrogen, we will need 234 terawatts hour of electricity and additional 165 terawatts hour of electricity for other purposes of the steel plants. And then um, coming back to ha what has been said, yes, uh, this, uh, what we see is that uh, the crisis that we are facing, um, it's for sure a challenge, but it's also opportunity to speed up the hydrogen. Uh, this is no doubt about. The only point that I would like to, to a little bit um, uh, clarify is that if we use hydrogen in blast furnaces, means that we also need to invest on infrastructure. The blast furnaces, they are not ready to uh, receive hydrogen. You also need to construct pipelines to, to send this hydrogen to blast furnaces. So, so somehow um, we need to put all this effort and all this uh, funding needed in constructing uh, direct reduction plants. So I, I, can I can talk uh, on behalf of ThyssenKrupp what happened recently with this whole crisis that we, we saw this as an opportunity actually to uh, double our capacity of our direct reduction plant. So uh, recently we, we, uh, we redefined that for our first direct, di direct reduction plant, we go in for double of it. So including uh, hydrogen in blast furnaces actually is not really the, the best solution, is let's go for the direct reduction plants, let's put the infrastructure available for it, and the most important thing, most of all, let's make this regulation ready as soon as possible so legal certainty is, is, is there for us. Catherine, I'd like to get your perspective on this. Um, what do you see as the role of hydrogen here in, in <laughs> the steel sector? Yeah. Uh, first, if, if uh, you allow me, I would like to comment on the uh, question you raised before concerning the effects of the uh, energy crisis that we, we see on hydrogen and hydrogen regulation. Because um, I believe that it changes some of the fundamentals. Uh, we have uh, different crises happening at the same time that put pressure. We have higher targets, but at the same time, we need to develop the infrastructure that we don't have to deliver the volumes we're talking about. So that also put pressure on the market itself that is still emerging how do we cope with higher energy prices uh, for uh, the steel industry and that includes as well higher uh, energy um, prices for uh, the production of hydrogen and how that will be uh, addressed for the steel uh, sector and here uh, we need to already develop some instruments for that uh, that means financing instruments but that means uh, that means as well uh, new purchase strategies for governments but as well for companies having different types of uh, purchase mechanisms so we start talking about hydrogen power purchase agreements and uh, therefore uh, we need to also address that in that context 
and uh, that will also reshape the international competition on the commodity market at a global scale. And we see that, for example, under the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, they already have a, a clear strategy for that. And uh, that will uh, that will need to be accompanied by an external dimension of the EU energy policy, as well as uh, uh, rightly pointed out um, by Ruth. Uh, so that, that, that was uh, one, uh, one of the comments and, and related to, to the effect on the steel sector, uh, I do believe, uh, as I mentioned, that it's, uh, it's uh, something that needs to be addressed as well in terms of uh, rentability. So how do you uh, address uh, the increase of those prices, but as well ensure that uh, the, beneficial, uh, the benefits of using uh, low carbon or renewable hydrogen uh, will come forward? Because that's also a question of industrial Politization uh, of Europe, industrial policy in Europe. Thank you. Well, we've heard mentioned several times two problems that we have right now, which is a lack of infrastructure and a lack of a market. So, Jens, what do you think will be the key requirements for building a well-functioning hydro hydrogen market that can actually get things moving here? Yeah, I'm the rapporteur of the parliament for, for the guest market directive and I hope that we de uh, develop the tools for that. So I was talking with a lot of investors uh, in, in the last week who said, well, sorry to say Ruth, but you know it <laughs> from, uh, from, from, from some other uh, opportunity, uh, uh, from, from some other discussions. I was told that with, uh, uh, the, the, with the regulation that was outlined by the Commission, there will be not so much investments because the unbundling um, uh, regulation that were proposed would force an investor to sell its network, his network, her network, uh, after 10 years. And everybody told me that is, we, we will neither get the money back then nor get a fair price uh, because everybody knows that we have to sell. So what I try to do is take what we have on the gas, gas exist, existing gas market and mirror it exactly in the same way on the hydrogen market so that every situation of unbundling that is due today in the member states can be used again to develop the hydrogen market and that is something that at least get a positive response from 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 uh, from the, uh, the guest enterprises saying, okay, this is a base which we can work because we want to transform, we want to step up into intro hydrogen, we want to produce it, we want to transport it, and this is the way we want to do it. Um, so. Up to now, I'm optimistic to say that uh, uh, all my sh shadow rapporteurs share this this view, and there seems to be uh, a majority behind that proposal. And we hope we keep that. We we, we are we are we will be uh, ready with the job in the beginning of 2023. So I think we could go to plenary in in, in January, and then it depends how fast the, the council will be, but I'm optimistic that we have a working uh, regulation ready in Brussels than to be delivered to the member states, of course, but ready in Brussels in uh, the first half of 23. And 
I get a lot of emails from, from, from managers of the gas enterprises, of the gas transport business saying, we are ready. We have money, we have manpower, we have skills, we are hiring people, we are outlining plans uh, uh, to, to build up the infrastructure. Um, uh, where, 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 where is it missing? And now let's give us the security of the regulation and then we can start. There's a lot of enthusiasm and I'm very happy to be a part of it. Ruth, let me get you to respond to that. Will the unbundling requirements discourage investment? Um, of course, when we put these proposals forward, we do also do our impact assessment. So these do not come from, from anywhere. But I think that the, the broad principle that we're seeing here is that hydrogen, we don't have a hydrogen market yet. We, we simply don't have one. There is some merchant hydrogen, which is all through private, private pipelines. So we're creating something completely new completely from scratch. And yes, it will compete, actually, uh, especially if you start repurposing gas infrastructures. These are complex decisions. How are you going to decide whether an existing pipeline is going to be repurposed or you're going to keep that pipeline to serve some of your existing customers? And we believe that the gas TSOs, as they have, have the capabilities. We don't disagree with that. They have the capabilities, they have the people, they've got the experience. What we want to make sure is that those decisions that are being made are for hydrogen and for the hydrogen market and are not diluted within the company. And that's where the whole unbundling idea comes from. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to create something like this. We think that if we give the right signals from the start, that the industry will arise, rise to that challenge. Uh, and if we have that principles in the beginning, then we can also really start with a fresh slate. Use the same people, use the same expertise, but really say, okay, this is a new market, let's build it from scratch. That's where the idea and the principles come from. Rosa, how do you think we can create this hydrogen market? And what are really the requirements to make sure that it's a stable one? Um, I like very much, I think, um, what we just said regarding the signals to the market, in the sense that I think the signal is quite clear regarding the importance that hydrogen will have in the future. Um, but we are still, um, and I just got the idea when preparing the panel from another Euroactive event that is happening, I think, next week about critical raw materials. And I was still, I think that the discussion is not going as far as it should be, because we talk as hydrogen to be, to be used yet, but where is this hydrogen going to come from, from electrolyzers? Where are the electrolyzers going to come from, from China? Are we creating a different dependence? So when, when talking before about um, using hydrogen for the security supply, I think it has a role to play, not definitely in the short term, because we don't have it. It will have in the long term. And the signal from, from um, the policymakers is clear, let's build this hydrogen economy. And I'm missing the, the supply chain development. We're still, um, unfortunately, don't, don't have many manufacturers, integrators in Europe. And that's one of the things that is creating the more, let's say, a noise right now, um, although we don't hear it that often, maybe, because we have other problems to tackle right now. Um, so this is, for me, maybe one of the key points. Um, and the second also could be, um, and maybe this is also um, discussed very often regarding the one of origin. So it's interesting how I learned the other day that, um, for instance, in some uh, parts of Switzerland, they were importing biomethane. 
um, and they didn't have a match between the warranty of origin in one system and another. So at the end, the customer was seeing it as natural gas. They couldn't certify that it was biomethane, but they are paying the premium for biomethane. So it's interesting how, unfortunately, we are still in this struggle of how we certify or don't certify. And still with hydrogen, I think we are in the same discussion. And if we have not sorted out with biomethane, I'm not sure how far we can go with hydrogen in that respect. So aside from market challenges, we also have infrastructure challenges. Jorge, let me go to you. We know that Southern Europe is going to have a big role in hydrogen uh, production, and Spain in particular has been very focused on this, but we also see an interconnection problem between Spain and the rest of the EU. Uh, what will be Spain's role in particular in developing in hydrogen, and how do we fix these infrastructure bottlenecks that we've encountered, uh, and, and do you think actually the new plan for MidCats, uh, so the, the new MidCat alternative, uh, is, is a step in the right direction? Well, uh, let me first, uh, because I, I would like to point some comments and, uh, from a very, uh, very practical or uh, developing uh, real projects perspective, what we were talking before about the markets and uh, the hygiene market and and the ramp up. Uh, I think uh, uh, first there is no real market yet. Uh, we have to develop project. We have to start building the project. So I think it is key that, uh, as I was saying, the delegated act is defined the sooner the better to start seeing hydrogen as a reality in certain projects. I think that the, these first years, uh, how we implement the subsidy scheme is going to be key. I mean, they, we have to make an efficient and realistic uh, uh, implementation of the subsidies scheme to make the real project happen. And we also need a fair play, talking about the market, and, and we need that the same conditions will be for all the, all the players, because there is a lot of new players, new entrants on these hydrogen markets. So um, having said that, I think um, is key uh, that uh, we need also to develop the hydrogen economy, uh, as is uh, as it was stated uh, right now by Rosa. Uh, this is key. I mean, and this is what we are doing. We we need to have all the equipment, and we need to have the capability to build all this equipment, uh, specifically inside our countries. And so, uh, talking about specifically in Spain, I think uh, there is a great opportunity for our country. We have uh, a lot of technical companies that uh, can uh, create the key elements. So we, as I was saying, we have, for example, an agreement uh, with Communes that is going to build in Spain a factory for producing 50 megawatt uh, a year of electrolyzers uh, to move to one gigawatt. And we have uh, very good relations with uh, other parts of the key bottlenecks part for developing real projects like uh, compressors and so on. So I think in Spain we have a good opportunity. Of course, we have a huge resource of renewables. So we have the technical capacity. We have companies that are willing to pay and, and invest on hydrogen and companies that are willing to, to invest on decarbonization of their own products. But at the end, we need to move forward on these other steps. So first years, we need to implement the subsidy scheme, the better the possible and as soon as possible. We need to define regulation and we work, we need to work on the, on the value chain. Catherine, I know you have to leave shortly, so I want to put one question to you on green uh, hydrogen. Uh, at what point will we uh, be able to have 
uh, completely CO2-free or fossil fuel-free hydrogen. How far away are we uh, from that? Um, and and is that is it is it really a very long-term perspective, or is it something that can be accomplished in the short term? Oh, that's a very uh, difficult question to answer, but uh, from uh, from the, the, the legal or regulatory side, I would say it very much depends on what kind of objective you, are, you have and what kind of criteria do you lay down in different at different levels. For example, we are talking about the steel industry. It could be related as well to uh, public procurement rules. You have concrete uh, criteria for the purchase of the different materials that will rely as well on hydrogen based on renewable energy production. It will be also a question of uh, standardization, and we have a, a wide work on standardization that has started already at the international level, but as well under the Renewable Energy Directive 2, the RED2, and both international standards and the SEN standards. And uh, the valorization as well of uh, renewable hydrogen, as was mentioned, uh, through the guarantees of origin. Um, in the meantime, that's sure that we need uh, to uh, develop the volumes, necessary volumes, and uh, the carbon footprint of hydrogen will be key to that. So once again, uh, the uh, quality uh, criteria for hydrogen, and that will go probably uh, through developing the market by developing low carbon uh, uh, hydrogen and making sure that we pursue the path towards renewable hydrogen. And that will be through all these different tools uh, related to the commodity uh, criteria that I uh, mentioned. I want to stay with this theme of green hydrogen and green steel uh, because most of the audience questions are actually on that topic. Um, so this first question from the audience I'm going to put to Rude. Uh, the question is from Alex Barnes. Repower EU expects that half of renewable hydrogen to be imported by 2030 uh, is 10 megatons, but that is expensive and difficult. LNG is 160 uh, OC, I'm not sure that, but liquid hydrogen is 253 OC. Uh, steel is easier to transport. Won't industry move to areas with lots of cheap renewables instead? Um. The, the, the 10 million tons of imports what we put in the Repower EU uh, responds to actually one of the previous questions in terms of the geopolitics. Yeah, I think, yes, we are importing, uh, oh, sorry, yes, we have a target for, for renewable hydrogen imports. Again, it's relatively small in terms of what we need for 202050. So we're really talking here not only about addressing kind of the natural gas challenge with Russia, but positioning Europe globally in this whole energy transition. And I think that's an important message that we're bringing with this 10 million tons. It's not just Europe, it's us together which have to do this energy transition. And that is actually the response to the question, will the steel industry move out, outside, of, uh, outside of Europe? Of course, my answer is I hope not. I mean, this is why we do these targets. This is why we have ambitious targets for 2030. That's why we have a specific target for industry. Because what we want to make sure is that green hydrogen, renewable hydrogen that we are producing here today in Europe, and let's face it, in terms of plants, we are still the world leader. That, that is available in Europe for our industry. That's why we target the industry. Now, thinking long term, um, yes, certainly there will be new industries popping up in terms of where renewable uh, electricity is cheap and available. 
but let's also think about what our European electricity system looks like. Today, actually, we are the highest in terms of inter integrating solar and wind variable renewables into our electricity system. So yes, you might have a country like Saudi Arabia, which has very cheap solar PV, but do they have the capability to create an electricity system as a whole that is completely decarbonized and integrate high shares of solar and wind into the system? I think there, actually, we have a competitive advantage. We have 10, 15 years of that experience. We have electricity regulation and rules. We have flexibility which is coming into the system. So that package as a whole, I think, is, it should be attractive for industry because we're not only kind of uh, creating now this renewable hydrogen, but if you look at the carbon neutral economy, that's, we, uh, we can deliver an energy, an energy system that can be the basis for industry. And I think that's our competitive advantage. Bianca, what would you say about this idea that steel, that, that the industry would move to areas with lots of cheap renewables? Oh, hopefully not, no. We want them to stay in Europe. I think that's the overall um, challenge that we have, but also opportunity, and that's what we are really fighting for, that uh, the steel industry really remains in Europe. That's why we are here today, and uh, I think the steel industry has put a lot of efforts um, in the direction to decarbonize and really uh, have those projects and be part and, and, and surf the wave of decarbonizing and really be the front runners and really um, be the big exporters of these technologies for the future. So I think this is, this is the role we want to play. Um, I want to put the next question to Jorge. So this question um, is again sticking on this theme of uh, green hydrogen. Um, so the, the question is from Jan Bolin from ArcelorMittal. Um, availability of massive amounts of green hydrogen is required to abate the iron steel making emissions. Will it require the steel sector to relocate some activities closer to H2 rich geographies or can H2 be transported uh, to current assets uh, competitively. I think uh, uh, we were talking about this a little bit before. Uh, if Spain is an H2 rich geography, would you expect that steel plants need to move closer to Spain? Well, I mean, I, I don't know much about the, the plants that the steel industry may have. Uh, what, is, what is true is that, um, well, yeah, fortunately in Spain we have a uh, good resource for renewables, so cheap price, and uh, and also we have a strong network. I mean, so the ability to 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 put the, all this all this energy on the network. So uh, I think there could be an opportunity inside the European Union producing green hydrogen and using carriers uh, inside the European Union. So I think that uh, this uh, project that the industry is looking at. Uh, and we um, and we see that uh, from uh, as a Spanish uh, renewable producer, uh, there is a lot of companies that want to think on Spain as a producer of green hydrogen and use carriers, green ammonia, or green methanol, or whatever to export to some other parts of Europe where new we new infrastructure for cracking or whatever will be will be there uh, installed. So uh, yes, I think there can be an opportunity. Not, not maybe for uh, industry that they are based in other countries to come to Spain, but, all, but also to consider Spain uh, as a country that may export, export in a way inside the European Union 
uh, our renewable, our cheaper renewable, uh, cheaper and available renewable energy. Uh, Jens, let me put this question to you as well. Uh, do you think it will be necessary to move some production closer to the H2, or can we get the H2 to where the facilities already are? In the beginning, I think we can put the hydrogen to the facilities, giving we have uh, given uh, we have enough infrastructure. I'd like to to point out that there is already uh, that there are already a lot of pipelines coming in from North Africa, so also the Maghreb countries who are our direct neighbors, in terms of uh, Morocco and, and and Spain, very close neighbors. We are already connected with them, so when we can make this uh, pipelines hydrogen ready, it would be possible to tra to transport uh, green hydrogen from um, renewable energy resources uh, in in North Africa, and that would also give these countries uh, an, an economic uh, perspective. Okay, we, you cannot rule out that sooner or later the the production would follow the the the, the prices, but this is. Um, something we have to, in, in our hands, politically, um, that we uh, play out the advantages that we have, and, and colleagues have, have pointed out several of them. Um, and finally, well, I mean, if we keep the rest of the production chain here, it is not, not so much damaging that in 20 years you probably build up uh, steel production um, uh, facilities uh, in 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 North Africa, I mean, we we in in the industrial hearts of Europe, we deal with the with the situation that industry changes since it began all the time, and and we manage to do that. So uh, I mean, I'm coming from the rural area. Duisburg is part of my constituency. Uh, uh, the the steel steel mill there from ThyssenKrupp is still the biggest in Europe, and of course I want to keep it. Uh, that's what I'm working for. Um, and uh, um, but um, when we have hydrogen, we have to face a situation that probably energy-intensive industry is at least tempted to go there, where the energy is even cheaper. But this is something we can we can manage and we can. Uh, cope with the situation, and we can play out the advantages that that uh, Europe uh, has when it, when it comes to to investment decisions. So I'm not very concerned. <clears throat> um, Catherine, I understand you can stay a bit later, which is great. And you wanted to come in on this point as well. Yes, it's. Um, I, I would like to comment as well. Uh, something that has not been raised before is uh, we're talking here about imports huge volumes but uh, for developing uh, also a supply for the local industries we will need smaller projects and 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 it's fundamental to to reach those two levels to have both small project at the local level but at uh, as well uh, the big volumes that will be imported through terminals through pipelines through uh, um, ship so uh, and that requires a minimum of coordination uh, and uh, locating them close to industries yes and something that is uh, very much welcome in the package in the hydrogen and low uh, uh, and decarbonized gases uh, package is the emphasis on planning and coordinated planning also in the perspective of the energy system integration. But just uh, uh, to have these two uh, approach in mind, I think it's very fundamental and uh, coordinated approach, integrated planning processes. 
Well, Rosa, I'd like to put the next question to you. Uh, this question is from Mauricio Belaunde from Agora Energy Venda. Loose production criteria for grid-connected renewable hydrogen production would lead to increased gas consumption in the power system. How can we reconcile a transition phase for hydrogen production with our efforts to reduce gas consumption? Do you think there's a risk that we drive up gas consumption in the short term by building infrastructure for hydrogen? There is always a risk, isn't it? Um, I think we are, but we are actually discussing now about imports as well. There is a risk that um, companies um, may go. I think we, we all saw the announcement yesterday from uh, BSF um, CFO. I think that was quite a message um, that they were giving us. So we do have a risk, but I think that's why we have um, people at the Commission of the Parliament, they are working on this package, they are working on different other legislative proposals. So when we talk about the package, uh, we talk about um, gas and hydrogen decarbonized market, but we have so many other legislative proposals. Um, we have RED2, we have the energy system integration. And when you really get into the topic, and I have been here in Brussels only three years, so I'm not, <laughs> even in three years, you don't have the time to get really deep into the topic, you realize that they are really trying to make coherence out of everything to avoid this risk. Because we are, um, I think it was said before, we are the front runners, you know, in, um, I think, um, honestly, in sustainability, in climate goals, in ambition, and that ambition is giving um, the right signal to the market. But at the same time, we will request our partners out there that they also fulfill the same condition that we are fulfilling because we don't want our industry to, to be seen as uncompetitive. We don't want this unfair advantage that others may, may have in other places where even um, human rights are not respected. So there is always a risk, but um, I think we all, and this is why um, I was talking before about this awareness of the communities. Um, we talk, we talk a lot about hydrogen now, but um, what about solar, right? It was the big thing um, 10 years ago, and many people didn't believe that we will have solar PVs in our rooftops. Even in my own family, it took me five years to convince them to put solar panels in their rooftop, even though I'm an engineer and they pay for that degree, um, because they didn't believe that could work. Can you imagine? So the people out there, they really need to understand that this is um, a cooperation with them and not that we are just increasing prices because we want, so, but because we are going Going through a transition and it might hurt at some point i think we are all suffering a little bit um, lately but we will get there and it will be better for all of us because we will have a better world but of course there will be risk and we have to face them and mitigate them the best possible way well the next question from the audience is for bianca this comes from federico from sandbag wouldn't circular steel making be useful to reduce the huge need of green uh, hydrogen does ThyssenKrupp have commitments or targets on EAF steelmaking using scrap? What are the policy incentives and disincentives? Yeah, in the case of ThyssenKrupp, actually, we, we work with the, what we call the blast furnace route, uh, not the EAF route. So actually, this is a, in, in the steel, in the steel uh, world, I would say, you have those two routes. So uh, what we are doing as ChissenCoop, uh, we are committed also, as I was saying, to this uh, 2045 target to reduce our emissions. We have a 2030 target. Uh, actually, 2045, we want to be carbon neutral. 2030, we have a 30% uh, CO2 emission reduction target. And uh, our strategy is to uh, 
discommission our four blast furnaces and implement direct reduction plants. So the two first direct reduction plants will come until 2030 and the other two prob uh, until 2045. So this is our current strategy. Uh, again, we don't, uh, we don't go in the EIF uh, route. Okay, so the next question is uh, for Root. This question from some, comes from Karsten Browns. Um, what is the state of play in applying carbon contracts for difference in the EU steel industry? So, um, in our <coughs> uh, proposals for the, the innovation fund and the use of the innovation funds, we have indeed requested to be able to use those funds to do either contracts for difference or carbon contracts for difference, uh, both options there. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's positive from the European Parliament, etc., from the Council, that that, that uh, will, will be approved. Um, so that indeed would then allow us to use those innovation funds to do those kind of, of, of uh, essentially financing mechanisms. Now, in, in anticipation, we've already started. So already at the beginning of the year, we are working with uh, a big consultancy uh, firm, etc., to see what is the design, what should the design of these contracts for difference and carbon contracts for difference look like. Um, it's important to understand that, that a contract for difference or carbon contract for difference provides financing for, for projects or for industry, etc. similar as we're doing right now in the Innovation Fund directly for project financing. So you really have to compare, okay, what are the advantages and disadvantages there? Now, for contracts for difference, it's about competition. You really can compete on price. And so we do believe that contracts for difference options are complementary to what we're already doing to really get that price discovery. Now, carbon contracts for difference is another mechanism again, but that really focuses on the industry. So saying, okay, your own industry, you have a carbon price. Give us decarbonization solutions for the cheapest cost per uh, mitigated uh, ton of CO2. So again, these different kind of mechanisms are complementary to each other. Now we hope that if the regulation is being approved uh, and based on the work that we've been doing right now at the moment, that by the end of 2023, we should be able to do the first kind of contracts for difference for, for uh, particularly hydrogen already. Um, so this is a big if, if everything works all right, but that's indeed what we're working towards. Okay, so there are two related questions here for Jorge. Uh, the first question is from Ervin Cornelis from ECOS. Uh, we need to speed up hydrogen production. Will we succeed in speeding the renewable energy capacity alongside? So will, will the effort, particularly in Spain, uh, to increase the renewables capacity go along with the uh, pace that we need hydrogen to be generated. And second question is from Rachel Burnett from Montel News. When might we see the first green hydrogen exports from Spain? Well, um, I think um, the renewable capacity growth, uh, at least in Spain, is quite important. So I think um, I, that um, yeah, we have uh, renewable energy enough but what our plans uh, for green hydrogen um, are based in our roadmap in Spain. Uh, our roadmap in Spain is very much focused on hydrogen applications for uh, replacing gray hydrogen and some schedule for some, some part of it for mobility. 
So, uh, I mean, uh, we have a very ambitious plan for growth on renewables in Spain. So, I mean, uh, this is not going to be an issue and we will have new additional, because this is key for us to understand that uh, uh, the, we need additional energy for renewable energy, new additional energy to, to produce the hydrogen that is inside our roadmap um, uh, for our country. In relation with uh, with uh, exporting hydrogen, I mean, it's, it's a matter of uh, make it uh, happen. Of course, uh, it's a big puzzle. You need a lot of things to to work together. You you need um, you need uh, someone outside Spain uh, with the willingness to pay. Uh, well, that uh, all the logistics. Of course, uh, ammonia can be a a, a carrier that may happen quicker than developing uh, some infrastructure uh, because of course there are already uh, logistics implemented in some in some areas in spain in some areas in europe so however bosch is a mature technology once you have the hydrogen develop uh, turning into ammonia and exporting can, can be something that can happen uh, quicker so uh, i think this could be a very interesting opportunity the the renewables are there um, in Spain, I think last year we have like 48% uh, penetration of renewables. So, I mean, we're talking about big percentages already and with a uh, huge growth, especially on photovoltaics. Uh, so, the next question is for Bianca. Um, the question is, uh, the question is from Jean-Marie Mitzi. Any opinion on the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act that is already offering a warranted support mechanism for up to, up to $4.50 per kilogram of green hydrogen for 10 years to project starting by the end of 2032? Is there any equivalent in the EU or should there be? Um, I think the NIA is, is a somehow a wake-up call for us, uh, given the pragmatic approach that the U.S. is uh, taking on, on this uh, file. So, um, for us, this shows that we also need to take a pragmatic approach here in, in Europe. And uh, we need, we need to, to get this regulation uh, ongoing and as, as pragmatic as clear as possible. We need, we, we need to bear in mind that uh, this regulation, for instance, for imports of hydrogen will also need to be fulfilled by somewhere outside Europe, right? So this also means that uh, more complex, less hydrogen and not so quick, the ramp up will happen. F for us as a steel industry, we are really talking about time. Time for us is the most precious things that we have right now. So the NRA shows that a pragmatic approach will, will uh, uh, there is a way having a pragmatic approach. Let's look at it and see as an opportunity also for us. Let's be pragmatic. Let's make as, as simple uh, as possible, not so complex, and let's start it. So I think uh, the NIA uh, somehow helps us. Um, Rude, is this possible uh, for the EU to do? No, we can't do tax credits. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And I, I think the one thing I've learned from the IRA is that we have to do a lot on communication. 
because I think in the European Commission, the, the framework that we're putting in place is more complex. You've been studying it for three years now, but it's, it's comprehensive. And so if I compare the RRA now with what we have in place in the European Commission, then I see two things. First of all, yes, the, uh, the IRA sets a threshold of four kilos of CO2 per kilo of hydrogen. Are you above that? Then you're out. If you're below that, you're in. We have exactly the same policy already since 2018, except we don't have four, but 3.4 kilos of CO2 per kilo of hydrogen. So actually, we are there, I would say, ahead. Then secondly, how is the IRA going to calculate what are the life cycle emissions of that hydrogen to give the three dollars? That's not developed yet. So they are now starting a public consultation. But well, we've had already a public consultation. We've had these discussions with industry. It's just a matter of getting to that final part. But again, there, I think we are ahead. Now then think, then the, the, the third bit, and that's of course the difference, is we don't do and we can't do tax credits. So there, they have in the policy system an advantage in that they can give a, a project certainty that if they receive certain criteria, that they receive a certain tax credit. On the other hand, if I look at the IPCEIs that we have now, the RF, etc., and I add up the budgets that we have already there, uh, not even talking about the European Hydrogen Bank or the, the innovation funds that we have, we're actually well ahead of what at least the US is expecting to hand out to hydrogen producers in the EU. So I think we have all of the elements here. Um, and we have excellent people working on developing those projects. So yes, it's important. It's important to have that competition. But I do think but also from our side, we have to do more in terms of communication because I do think that we are still ahead. Uh, next question, again from Federico at Sandbag. I'm going to put this to Jens first. Um, should hydrogen be included in the carbon border adjustment mechanism as the parliament has proposed? Well, um, uh, we had a majority in the parliament when we lined out the hydrogen strategy uh, for a formula saying let's support the green hydrogen and let's not um, uh, uh, let, let's let's um, not discriminate the blue one, um, and that was comes from from the idea that we probably um, are better off when we ramp up hydrogen uh, technology as soon as possible, even when we are not having enough green electricity to run the electrolyzers. The other way around would mean that we postpone the ramp up of the hydrogen for uh, 10 years at least until we have an, enough green uh, energy. And I think we will always be energy importers as Germans, as EU, uh, as Europeans altogether. And because of that, I don't think that hydrogen should, should be subject of the CBAM. Um, Bianca, what's your take on this? Well, um, I would say at, as Eurofair, we don't have a, a position on, on this one. Um, I would say, yeah, at least to my, to my knowledge. I, so I would prefer to, to pass the question, I would say. <laughs> uh, Rosa, what about you? Good idea or bad idea? Um, I, 
I think you're right. <laughs> I think that's my, my personal opinion on that. Um, I think, um, but we already have the discussion about the colors for so long, right? So I, I tend to avoid the, the word green or blue or gray or pink or yellow, um, try, trying to talk about renewable, but then people are like, what do you mean by renewable? But I have also been working in the gas sector, um, and we also have the same discussion about what is a sensitive user to gas quality, right? So I think it's a discussion that we will never solve. But so far, what is the purpose, right? I think this is what we are focusing, what we should never forget, what is the purpose? Is the carbonization? Yes, but it's also not at whatever cost. I, I heard some comments um, around from some other um, panels. I mean, there is a panel every day, right? <laughs> so, but yet, you <laughs> just keep track. Um, that they say, okay, we have to be green, even if that means paying three times more. And I, I do not agree with that. Um, I would say, yes, definitely, I want to I wanna keep my, I mean, as a young energy professional, I want to keep um, the climate, I, I want to have a future. Um, but we also have to take care that we are not putting too many restrictions, maybe, on how we decarbonize that. So I would say that at least the arguments brought forward, um, they make sense for me, but of course not an expensive arm, so... <laughs> And finally, Rud, how does the Commission feel about including hydrogen in CBAM? Yes, of course, we, we didn't introduce it in, in the proposal, so we have a clear view on that. And actually, that view is, is a pragmatic view, <laughs> in that we said the CBAM in general protects our industry. But of course, to be pragmatic, it has to cover those pro uh, products which are traded. Steel is traded. Ammonia is traded, aluminium is traded, electricity is traded, and they're clear, simple products. So that's where the C-band works there. Of course, we're going to develop over time. Right? This is a new, new instrument, so, so that's also to keep something in mind. Now, one of the other pieces which is still missing is the certification both for renewable and low-carbon hydrogen. Of course, once the criteria is there, that can be implemented actually quite rapidly because we have all of the processes in place to implement that certification. <coughs> But that also would mean that if you then get imports of renewable and low carbon hydrogen, we would exactly know the CO2 content of that hydrogen. So there we have a mechanism in place to track that CO2 content of hydrogen. Now, there is a possibility that we start importing or trading gray hydrogen. But that, I think, is a small possibility. I don't know if that is going to happen or not. If that would happen, then, of course, I think you get into a situation where you can say, okay, uh, imported gray hydrogen would be competing with renewable and low carbon hydrogen. But only in that situation, I think it would make sense to act. Uh, and all of the other occasions, I think, through steel, we've already covered it. Through ammonia, we've already covered it. So, so, so we're ready there. Yeah, this issue of certification is one I think that's come up several times uh, today. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today's discussion. I want to thank the panelists both here and online for some excellent uh, contributions. I think what's clear is we are in a brave new era when it comes to hydrogen. And uh, the, the current geopolitical situation is obviously affecting the, the, the drive for this right now, that it's renewed in focus. But of course, hydrogen has been in focus for a while now here in the EU. The question is, how do we build the infrastructure and the market to make it happen? I think we've heard a lot of very interesting ideas today, so certainly plenty to think over. Uh, so now I would like to invite the people in the room for a networking reception afterwards. Uh, and for those of you watching online, I invite you to have an excellent lunch in your home or office or wherever you are. We'll see you right back here for the next Your Active Debate. Take care.